I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to the third chapter of Colossians. We're going to take a brief break from our studies in uh, Matthew for two or three weeks in order to make um, a mid-course change of direction. I've never been much for uh, making anything of New Year's, making New Year's resolutions or those sorts of things, but I uh, suspect this time of the year is as good a time as any to talk about change and, and uh, charting a new course. I've had a number of things in the back of my mind and on my heart the past uh, month, and this is a good chance for me to uh, express these things to you. There are some things that I want to say this morning that uh, are hard, they're difficult for me to say, And I don't in any sense want you to think that I'm backing the truck up to you. I'm not. But uh, there are some things that I feel honestly need to be shared, expressed. And they're most easily taught from the book of Colossians. Um, Paul wrote the book of Colossians, as far as we know, from prison. He was probably in Rome. He doesn't tell us in the book that... uh, He was in that particular city, but uh, the chronology fits most closely to Paul's Roman imprisonment. He wrote to a church that uh, he himself was not too familiar with. As far as we know, he'd never been there. There are some suggestions in the the book that most of the people there were strangers to him. He didn't found a church. We don't know who did. Many people think it was Epaphras, whose name is mentioned in this uh, epistle and who probably carried the epistle back to uh, Colossae. We don't even know much about the problem that uh, occasioned this book. There is some indication, and I'm, I'm just guessing and reading between the lines, that someone in the church was trying to blend Greek philosophy and biblical teaching, probably to render the gospel a little bit uh, more acceptable to the intellectuals of that, of that area. But uh, they assumed that philosophy had the ultimate uh, authority. In other words, they were using Greek philosophy to correct Scripture rather than seeing Scripture as the absolute authority by which we correct every other system of thought. They had just turned things backwards. And so Paul is writing to uh, correct this, this false teaching. Now, in order to understand what Paul is talking about in chapter 3, we need to back up a bit to chapter 2, verse 6, where he begins his uh, note of correction. Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep on walking in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, uh, Paul is doing here what he frequently does. He takes us back to Jesus and the apostles as the, as the basis for all of Christian life. We really don't have any other ultimate authority for understanding the gospel. We always go back to Jesus and the apostles, to Scripture. And Paul says, I want you to uh, go on walking in Christ, just the way you received him. In other words, you didn't invent the gospel, you didn't concoct it, you received it 
It was passed on to you by the Lord himself and his apostles, and now you should go on walking in the gospel as you were instructed. One of the reasons we make so much of teaching here is because uh, we need to go back to the apostles. We teach the scriptures because that's the basis of everything we, uh, we believe. We're not trying to develop a particular kind of heady Christianity where everything is intellectual and, and uh, where we're, we're bound by our minds. That's not biblical Christianity, but we do need to understand scripture and be accurate in our understanding of Scripture so we can act appropriately. Most of the heresies, both in doctrine and uh, in action, result from faulty understanding of Scripture, misinterpretation of Scripture. So uh, our concern is to teach the Scriptures accurately so people can act appropriately. They can act according to the truth. And as Paul puts it here, we need to... uh, Go on growing in Christ. He actually mixes his uh, metaphors. He says, you have, and here he uses a past tense verb, put your roots down into the Lord. Now, go on being built up on that basis. He starts with an agricultural metaphor of a tree with roots, and he switches to building a building, but the point's very clear. We uh, lay our foundation on the Lord, and we build from there, or we put our roots down into the Lord, and we build from there. We don't have any other source of information about the Lord except uh, what we read in Scripture. We need to go on growing in that relationship, understanding who the Lord is, understanding what His Lordship means, understanding what great resources we have in Christ for everything, learning to abide in Him, trust Him, count on Him, rely on Him, act out of His life. That's... uh, That's the purpose of studying Scripture, so we can understand what we have in Christ and act accordingly. And Paul says the great mark that we understand the resources that we have in Christ is that we are overflowing with gratitude. Uh, Whenever you meet a negative, pessimistic Christian, uh, you can understand that he simply doesn't understand the resources that he or she has in Christ. Because of all people, we ought to be positive and confident and um, full of gratitude. If uh, somebody informed you that they had uh, put uh, $5 million in your checking account gratis, you would be filled with gratitude. You would discover you, that you had resources to cope with any financial pressure coming up. You could put your kids through college. You could pay off your visa card that you ran up over the Christmas holidays. Uh, you know, and every time you wrote a check, you would be filled with gratitude. Now, that's the attitude that ought to pervade us as Christians. We ought not to be sour and negative and critical and down on people and down on ourselves. Because we have the resources to tackle any problem. We don't have to quit. We don't have to quit on our marriages. We don't have to quit on our relationships as brothers and sisters. We don't have to uh, stop trying to work out our problems with our children or with our parents. We can be overflowing with gratitude. Now, this is where Paul begins. He states the principle first. Positively and then negatively in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive 
He uses a hunting term here. It uh, refers to capturing animals and putting them in cages. And I suppose what he means is let no one make a monkey out of you through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Now Paul's concern here is that we not be captivated by empty and deceitful philosophy. For some people, the word philosophy conjures up uh, bad images of courses that they took in philosophy in school and people like Kant and Hegel and Spinoza and others. And, you know, I, Paul's right. Let's don't have anything to do with philosophy. That's a bunch of nonsense. But uh, that's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, the term empty and deceitful, those two phrases qualify the term philosophy. In other words, he says, let's don't have anything to do with empty, deceitful philosophy. As a matter of fact, the New International Version actually translates the phrase that way. Avoid empty, deceitful philosophy. Because you can't avoid philosophy. Everyone has a philosophy of life. In fact, that's one of my favorite introductory statements for talking to people about the gospel. What's your philosophy of life? A philosophy of life simply, uh, it has to do with principles for coping with life. You businessmen have philosophies of business. Maybe you operate on the basis of the golden rule, do unto others as they would have them do unto you. That's a philosophy of business. Or maybe your philosophy is do unto others before they do you, or do unto others and cut out, uh, both of which would be inappropriate for Christians, but they are nevertheless philosophies of life. Uh, you women have philosophies of cooking, and you have a philosophy of housekeeping. I talked to one woman this past week who said her philosophy of housekeeping is biblical. It's based on the statement, dust you are, and to dust you shall return, so why fight it? <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, I suppose, a philosophy of life. So uh, we all have them. But Paul, you see, Paul is not talking about that sort of thing. He's talking about empty and deceitful philosophies, philosophies that have no basis in fact. And uh, throughout history, uh, men have, have subscribed to philosophies that have absolutely no basis in fact. They're empty and deceitful. Uh, you think back four or 500 years ago, and people believed the world was flat. That was a philosophy of life. And uh, they believed uh, that the earth was supported by a great turtle. And under that turtle was another turtle. And under that turtle was another turtle. And it didn't make any difference how far you went. It was turtles all the way down. <laughs> that, was, that was a philosophy. And uh, they believed in such things as a philosopher's stone, that you could uh, mix this. If you found this stone, then you could turn base metals into gold. And all sorts of crazy things that were just accepted uncritically because... That's what they were taught. And uh, as C.S. Lewis puts it, in this age, it's the great myth of evolution. That man is, uh, is progressing toward perfection. He's getting better and better. And, and scientists take what is a, a biological theory and they give it universal adequacy. They, uh, they apply it to everything, anthropology and sociology and, and every, uh, every possible discipline. I, uh, some of you, I'm sure, have seen the 
television program Cosmos and uh, heard Carl Sagan. He's a very interesting fellow. And about uh, 75 or 80 percent of what he says is very instructive. And it's truth. It's based on scientific fact. But what always floors me is that he will state with equal authority things that are merely opinions. Uh, the other day he made the statement that we are today better able to handle the problems of human relationships than we were 100 years ago because of advances in science. I nearly fell out of my chair. We're better, we have less war, less divorce, fewer uh, problems, uh, national and uh, personal problems because of the advance of science. And yet he can make statements like that as dogmatically as he can describe some known uh, fact, phenomenon in science. And that's the sort of thing you see that Paul is trying to wave us away from. Don't buy into philosophies that are empty and deceitful according to tradition, as he says. That is, they're incomplete. They're based on uh, old wives' tales and mixtures of truth and error. Or, as he, as he puts it, uh, they're according to the elementary principles of the world, the ABCs of the world, the rudimentary facts of the universe, facts which can be gained through observation but exclude revelation and not according to Christ. You see, that's the problem. They're eccentric. They're off-center because Christ is the center of everything. As he goes on to say, in him all the Fullness of deity resides in bodily form. Uh, the word for deity here is a word that Paul only uses once. In fact, it's only used here in the New Testament. It means the, the essence of God. Everything that God was became man. We talked about that two weeks ago. This is the mystery of God. Jesus Christ, the God-man. The man who was fully man, and yet he was fully God. And what's more, Paul says, this fullness is transmitted to us. In him you have been made complete. It's the same word that's translated full, or it's based on the same root as the word translated full in verse 9. In him all the fullness of God resides, and you've been made full. You've been given everything you need. And uh, unless he's the center of life, the one around whom we integrate all of life, we will never be satisfied. Never. Money will never satisfy us. Education will never satisfy us. Physical beauty will never satisfy us. Sex will never satisfy us unless Jesus Christ is the center. And then everything falls into place. As the Old Testament puts it, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's that love, respect, worship, of the Lord Jesus that permits us to put everything in life into place and to be satisfied and fulfilled. Now, Paul says that's the Christian philosophy of life. If you want a philosophy, that's a dandy. That's the one that works. The Lord Jesus in the center, rooted in him, growing up in him, and established in your faith. And then Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 2 to describe what God has done in order to uh, make that life practical, to enable us to work that life out into the world. He says, uh, in essence, you, you're, you're dead. You've been put to death. 
You were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and, and resurrection. And now you've been given a new life. Past doesn't matter. Every moment is a new beginning. You're a new creature. You don't need to be concerned about the guilt of, of the past or your impotence and inability to be what you know you ought to be in the future. The Lord, in his death, burial, and resurrection, took care of all of those concerns. And it's on that fact that Paul then bases his teaching in chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's a rather lengthy introduction, but I think necessary. Uh, we need to understand the foundation on which Paul makes this appeal. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For, this is the reason, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a hidden source of power. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, the first thing Paul says is that you're dead. You don't look dead. Some of you do. But uh, most of you look uh, somewhat alive and alert this morning. But uh, you are dead. Now, what Paul is talking about is not your uh, human body. It's very much alive. But the nature that you and I inherited from Adam. The old man, as Paul calls it. The old life. The old tendencies that gripped us and controlled us and dominated us. Paul says that portion of you is dead. Now, he doesn't mean that it ceases to exist because you don't have to be around very long as a Christian to know that, that the pull of the old life is just as strong. But what Paul is telling us is that it has no power over us. It's impotent. Its power has been stripped. We don't have to be dominated and controlled by the guilt of our past or our feelings of impotence. We don't have to be controlled by our habits our reactions to people, some people feel they're impotent in terms of re reaction and response. They just can't respond the right way when someone treats them unjustly or says a harsh word. Or they can't control their tempers or they can't control their thought life. But you see, we can. Because Paul says, without mincing any words, we have died. The old life has been rendered inoperative. We don't have to be dominated by it any longer. Sin will not have dominion over us, Paul says. And beside, we have a new life. We've been hidden with Christ in God. We have a secret source of life. We have been given the very nature of God himself. Not because we're innately good, or we deserve it, or we've somehow worked our way into a position where God owes us something, but by simply acknowledging our need and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord, he has imparted to us his nature so we can be what God has called us to be. And not only that, we are sons of God. Now, you don't look like sons of God, and neither do I, but neither did Jesus. You look like anyone else out on the street, but we are sons of God. John puts it another way in his little book in 1 John 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the sons of God, and we are. 
And he says, it does not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, we don't look like sons of God. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be revealed for what we are, which is precisely what Paul says here in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The whole universe will see you for what you really are, a son of God. I have on numerous occasions when our sons left uh, home or left the house said, All right, guys, remember whose sons you are. And I do not mean remember that you're my son because I've never put that burden on, on our children that they have to live up to some expectation that I or others have because of my uh, place as a pastor. They know what I mean. It's a reference to the fact that they're sons of God. That's the hidden life that we possess. We're sons of God. And that's Paul's appeal. Let's start acting like sons of God. His appeal in verses 1 and 2 is based on the fact that we have died and we have a hidden life, which is the life of Jesus Christ in us, and we are related to God through Jesus Christ, and we therefore ought to act out of that relationship. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, how do you do that? I used to puzzle over that verse. I'm a son of God, and I'm supposed to set my mind on things above. What does that mean? Think lofty thoughts? Meditate on Scripture? Hum hymns to myself? What do I do? I have to live in the world. How do you set your mind on things above? Well, Paul tells us, God never leaves us in the dark about these matters. These are not vague charges to obedience. They're very specific. In verses 5 through 11, he tells us what it means to set your mind on things below. In verses 12 through 17, he tells us what it means to set your mind on things above. It's very practical. Paul says in verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body your members, with reference to the world, as dead to immorality. That's the uh, word for fornication, the general term, the big term for all forms of illicit sex. Impurity, passion, now he's down in the realm of attitudes. Evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I take it since he mentions greed here, uh, in a context of sexual matters, he's talking about a desire to experience every type of sexual immorality, which he says amounts to idolatry. The uh, Greek term for idolatry means the worship of that which is seen. So it's the worship of, of our bodies, something physical. And these things, he says, are all characteristic of the world. And we're to reckon or consider our members, the members of our body, the various members of physical members of our body, as dead to all of these things because we have died with Christ. And no matter how much pressure there may be, may be upon us from the world to give way, we don't have to. We can consider them dead. For, he says in verse 6, it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And as we've discussed before, the wrath of God is not God meeting out immediate acts of judgment, sending lightning bolts crashing out of the sky to strike us down but rather his letting us have our way. Romans 1 makes that very clear. 
If we want to go our own way, God lets us. And that is the, the wrath of God coming upon us. And in them, he says, you also once walked when you were living in them. Now, all these folks in Colossae would say, yes, Paul, that you're right. That's worldliness, fornication and evil desire and passion. Those things, that's, that's worldliness. And we used to walk that way, but we're not worldly anymore. But uh, Paul says in verse 8, But now you also put them all away. That is, every form of worldliness. Anger. That's uh, the word for a slow burn. Uh, a bitter, resentful heart. Wrath. Uh, it's a term for outbursts of anger, temper, tantrums. Malice. Malicious thoughts toward uh, others. Slander. That's the word for gossip. And abusive speech from your mouth. That's a reference to any kind of verbal uh, degradation of a brother, just degrading a a brother verbally, talking about them, uh, speaking against them, criticizing them, attributing to them evil motives. And then in verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another. Actually, stop, as you see in the margin, stop lying. Uh, and he's thinking in larger terms than mere verbal deceit, any form of deceit. In other words, uh, don't try to put up a false front. Don't deceive people. Be honest and transparent. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, don't have to pose or or present ourselves as something that we're not. We can be real and genuine and honest and just be what we are because we're new men and women in Christ who, as Paul says, are being renewed uh, according to the image of the one who created him. I think Paul has in mind here Adam in his, in his pristine state, his innocence. It's God's plan that we, as his children, be restored to that state, reflecting the character of God as Adam was created to do. And God's at work in all of us to, to recreate moment by moment that new image, that new man, reconstitute us as God's men and women. Present us before himself as, as mature and perfect. God's at work in us to do all of these things. And we need to cooperate. So Paul says, don't gossip. Don't slander each other. Don't speak against each other. Don't criticize each other. Uh, don't try to deceive each other. There are, there are better ways to handle problems. And this renewal in verse 11, he describes as a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Uh, the Greeks and Jews never could get along until the gospel came along. The Jews hated the Greeks, and the Greeks the Jews, uh, until the gospel came. And then those barriers dropped, and uh, they began to worship together in their churches, and carpool together, and all sorts of things. Because the gospel, you see, had, had made two into one. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian. The Greeks uh, didn't like the barbarians because they were uncouth, uncultured. 
In fact, our word barbarian comes from the, the Greek term barbaria, which is just a play on their language. The Greeks heard the barbarians talk, and it sounded like bar, 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 bar to them, and so they called them barbarians. And they couldn't stand them, uneducated slobs from the north. And uh, then there were Scythians, whom the Romans uh, had learned to despise because they were so treacherous. But you see, all these people were being blended together because when the gospel came, all of these national, ethnic, cultural differences were dissolved. And these differences no longer made any difference. No difference between slave and free man or Republican and Democrat or Californian or Idahoan. But Christ is all and in all. See, when, when Christ is all, all the differences exist. We're really different. You know, we sit down and talk to each other, and, and we have different educational backgrounds, different political backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different perspectives on life, different ways of relating to, to life. And yet those differences don't ultimately make any difference. That's what Paul is saying. Because what God is doing is creating one new man. One. That's conformed to the image of, of the Creator. And, uh, and the social irritants, the things that keep that oneness from being expressed, are the things that he describes here as wrath, anger, malice, slander, gossip, abusive speech. And that's worldliness. You see that? The apostles use different idioms to refer to worldliness. John says, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Paul says, don't set your mind on things below. Same thing. It's worldliness. You know, we in the evangelical church have had a tendency to define worldliness on such a narrow band that I think we've missed the whole point. Worldliness to us is uh, smoking, drinking, chewing, and going with girls that do. And uh, I'm, it's not my purpose at this point to try to debate the rightness or wrongness or any of any of those things. I think there are probably Christian and non-Christian reasons for doing or not doing any of those things. But uh, we need to understand the essence of worldliness. Uh, the temptation, I think, is to define worldliness as one or two things, and then we think we've got it controlled. If we don't do those five things, then we're not worldly. But we cannot do those five things and then just be filled with worldliness because there's bitterness and, and contention and division among us. Someone asked me the other day why I didn't speak out on rock music and uh, uh, make the statement that uh, young people ought not to listen to rock music. Well, in my book, probably 95% of rock music is worldly. No question about it. Advocates uh, adultery and fornication and, and rebellion against authority and all sorts of things that are contrary to uh, the truth. For myself, I don't think the problem is the beat, although it may destroy your hearing. And in that sense, it's probably wicked on the level of staying up till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and watching television. That ruins your eyes. The other ruins your ears. But uh, to me, the problem is the words, and I think that's where we need to concentrate. Most of the words are bad. And if you listen to it, you know they are. 
But uh, if we say, if we identify rock music as worldliness and say you can't listen to rock music, what do we say about country western music? Most of it is just as bad, a little more subtle. I heard Barbara Mandrell at the Snake River Stampede two years ago sing four or five songs that were all, all had to do with adultery and fornication, and then her final song was uh, Nearer My God to Thee. I nearly fell out of the stands. I thought, my goodness, what's going on here? You see what I'm trying to say? Worldliness is uh, far more extensive than we think it is. And what we need to do is teach our young people and ourselves, all of us, how to identify worldliness in all of its forms when it shows up in Better Homes and Garden, in National Geographic, in Reader's Digest. And we condemn certain movies because they're violent and filled with sex, and rightly so, and then we... We go to see 9 to 5, and we think, boy, that's a funny movie. But, you know, that movie is about as non-Christian as any movie I have ever seen because it advocates revenge, taking matters into your own hands. And I'm not, you know, we just have to be discerning. That's all I'm saying. Let's learn to recognize worldliness wherever it exists. And as a body of believers, let's realize that a spirit of criticism of slander, of gossip, is worldly. Now, let me say what's on my heart. And you just have to know that it comes from love. For the past uh, two months or so, there has been a great deal of uneasiness on the part of some people in our congregation about certain things that the elders have done. And there has been some slander. There has been a great deal of gossip. And it's wrong. And we need to stop it. Now, I don't say this uh, because I have any authority to command you. I don't. I'm just a brother. But on the basis of Scripture, we need to judge ourselves. Now, the Bible has a way to handle problems. It's very clear. If you see your brother committing a fault, what do you do? You go to your brother. The Bible does not say, go to someone else. It is never, under any circumstances, whatever, right to go to another brother and criticize someone else. That's wicked. It's worldliness. And we must not tolerate it. I'm, I'm saying in me as well, you see. It's wrong. Now, uh, no one here in the congregation believes that the elders are infallible. And believe it or not, the elders don't believe it either. If we as individuals are not uh, infallible, certainly no collection of men will be infallible either. We make mistakes. We have made a number of mistakes. I can think back through the two and a half years I've been here, and uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. Um, so we're not always right. But it's our intention to do what God wants us to do. That's our heart. And if there are problems, you need to come to the people with whom you have a problem. Go directly to your brother. The Bible doesn't even say go find somebody else and pray about it. It doesn't say that. Just go to your brother. People say, well, I couldn't do that. I just get blown away because I don't know enough Scripture. It doesn't make any difference. The way to handle problems is to go to your brother. Uh, problems don't just go away, by the way. I hope you know that. If you ignore them, they don't just go away. They get worse. 
So the thing to do is to go directly to the person who offended you or who is acting wrongfully and to talk to them. If they won't hear you, then Scripture says take two or three. And furthermore, Scripture says don't quit. Don't back off and go someplace else just because you're out of favor with what's going on. We Christians must learn to work out our problems in the context of love. To me, one of the great tragedies of church history is the large number of church splits, usually over personalities. Very rarely do they have anything to do with theology. They're based on personality. How in the world can we say that the world doesn't have their act together when we don't have ours together? How can we do that? Since I've been here in Boise, I know of four churches, four Bible-teaching churches that have split. And there was no need for any of them to split. Because God has a way to solve these problems. When you have a problem, you go directly to the person that is responsible and you appeal to them in a spirit of love. And furthermore, as Paul puts it positively here in verses 12 through 17, there is a spirit that we have to maintain even in following this, uh, this course. <clears throat> and so as those who have been chosen of God, that's, that's our uniqueness. We're His, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another, that is, allowing for another's weaknesses. Forgiving each other, allowance for wrongs done to you. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you. That's the standard. How many times do you forgive your brother? who uh, sins against you. Peter asks the question, seven times? That's a lot. And uh, Jesus said, no, in effect, you forgive 490 times, or uh, in effect, an infinite number of times. You never stop forgiving. That's the standard of forgiveness. And beyond all these things, put on the love, The thee doesn't occur in your English text, but it's there, and it's a reference to the love of Christ, which is the perfect bond of unity. That is, that that love, it always is, it's there to seek the good of the person. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and be, in which you were called one body, and be thankful. And as I'm sure you know, the word rule here means the call to the decisions. And unfortunately, this passage has been wrenched from its context and applied to, uh, to personal guidance, and it really has nothing whatever to do with discerning God's will. It's not the peace of God, some, a subjective sense of direction that, that calls the decisions, because you can see from the context, Paul is talking about the peace of Christ that was, made, that was accomplished in the cross. He reconciled all of these elements into one new man. That's the peace of Christ. And Paul's point is, We ought to make every decision on the basis of the one new man that's being created. That is how we make decisions. To what extent will my actions fragment the body of Christ or to what extent will it serve to maintain the unity that the Lord himself has created? And then in verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
in those days, they didn't have uh, Bibles bound in leather like this, and they couldn't take them home and read them. They, they were taught the Scriptures in public meetings, and then they memorized the Word, and they put music to them. There are a number of these uh, little hymns in the New Testament. Paul uses as illustrative material from time to time. So uh, it was a mnemonic device. It was a way of remembering Scripture and uh, widely practiced in those days. So you could sing the words of Scripture to yourself and remember them. Uh, So in our day, what he's talking about is letting the Word dwell in your hearts in whatever form you're learning it as you're being taught and as you study the Scriptures for yourself. In other words, act according to the truth of Scripture, not according to the traditions of men or the ways of handling problems that are widely accepted in, in the world. You know, to go out the back, Jack, pick up the key, Lee, take off, hit the road if things aren't going right. That's a worldly philosophy. No, we need to, we need to stick together like glue. It's love that unifies us. We need to express that love in the ways uh, outlined here in Scripture. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In other words, in everything we do, we need to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the mark of a great church is? It's not numbers. You can have 5,000 people in a church and still not have a great church in terms of, of true greatness. You can have a beautiful building. Stained glass windows, choirs, clergy, all sorts of things which really have nothing to do with greatness. The mark of a great church is that they love each other. They're forgiving. They're patient. They forbear. They don't give up on one another. They hang in there. They stay with it. They love each other through thick or thin, no matter what it costs. And they resolve their problems on the right basis on the biblical basis. And that's what it means to set your mind on things above. And we can do it because we're sons of God. We have the resources available. You know, we're not playing for nickels and dimes. I'm sure you appreciate that. We're playing for great stakes. The issues are very high. We're playing for lives. And there's a community out there. Uh, Many... uh, Many aspects of which have no Christian witness, whatever. I know of very little right now going on on the high school campuses of an evangelistic nature. Some churches doing the job, but, but no intensive effort to reach the high school crowd. We have only scratched the surface at, at BSU. We have the legislature here. There are your neighbors, my neighbors business associates, friends there without the Lord. And we must not permit ourselves to be sidetracked from the great issues of life by some minor inconvenience to ourselves about which we complain. We need to listen to God's Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in all of our hearts. Be subject to Christ's Lordship. Work at our own personal growth. Put our roots down into the Lord and grow up in Him. And work toward cultivating our relationships with one another. And then live out in the world the love that we have for one another. Let's do it. In Christ's name. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we thank you for telling us the truth. 
for giving us the insight and instruction that we need that will enable us to go through the world with skill, with poise. Thank you for teaching us how to live life as men and women were intended to live it. We thank you that we're being renewed constantly. We can think back over the failures of even this past week or day and realize how much we're in need of that renewal. We don't any of us measure up. But uh, we thank you that you don't give up on us, that you love us to the end, and you're faithful to us. Even if we are unfaithful to you, you abide faithful. We thank you for giving us all that you are to be all that you've called us to be. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.